In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I get to chat with a lady who moved to Australia from Croatia with a family in the early 70s without even knowing how to speak English. Branka Stasevic assimilated quickly but had to overcome the loss of her mother and escape domestic violence before going on to study and become a dentist and carve out a successful career. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Branka Stasevic, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to be here. You've got a Croatian and Eastern European background. Where did your family come from and how did you end up in Australia? We emigrated to Australia back in 1971, actually. Um, it was the time of um, like huge immigration around the world. Countries had their arms open to the world to build their populations. So, you know, come to us, it was much easier in those days. And uh, Australia was known as the lucky country. That's what it was called, that's what it was known as. And my family emigrated back in 1971. I was nine years old and my sister was uh, seven, six and a half, seven, um, when we came out. And we came out as a family of four. Uh, we didn't know anyone and we didn't speak a word of English either, of course. And um, yeah, we landed in Brisbane. Must have been a culture shock as a nine-year-old <laughs> coming to Australia. Um, it's funny uh, you say that because I don't remember it being a culture shock. I just remember assimilating really quickly and loving, loving where I was, loving the country. Um, and also, I don't even remember having a lot of trouble learning English. As kids, you just pick it up. We picked up English so easily and so quickly. It was incredible. Um, I think I started year four at primary school. And when I went to East Brisbane State Primary School, right next to the cricket, Gabba Cricket Ground. Yeah. So that was a <laughs> that was a great spot for um, a new young um, kid to be in and learn all about some of the culture of Australia and what's huge in this country. So we used to be able to actually see the cricket in the lunch hour um, through the fence. I think it's all changed now since they redid the Gabba Cricket Ground. But back in the seventies, we could we would watch the games. So I watched you know the Chapel Brothers when they were big playing cricket back in those days. And I, I think, um, yeah, I think I started in year four, which was made me a bit older than the other kids because I didn't speak English. Uh, by the end of the year, I was, you know, topping, um, well, maths. Maths, you don't have to, you know, know a different language to do mathematics. So I was topping the class in mathematics and, and picking up my English really quickly as well. And we used to have this amazing English teacher, Mrs. Rosemary Kyberz. I'll never forget her. She was the most gorgeous elegant woman she always had the beautiful makeup done the hair the nails and um she was our english teacher so we'd go off at, when the, the kids had english we'd go to english lessons with mrs kybers and um she would hold up cue cards and that's how we learned in the beginning you know she'd hold up a picture of a dog it's a dog it's a cat it's whatever um i think the first few words we learned in english were like bread and milk because the parents <laughs> used to send you to the shop go and get some bread go and get some milk 
and I'm sure we learned a few swear words in the beginning. I'm, you know, kids teach you that. As you do. As you do. And um, that's how I learned to speak English through these cue cards. And I remember Mrs. Rosemary Kyber, she became a politician um, some years later in Brisbane. So she was actually in politics for a while. And I saw her once in the Sunday Mail or something. And I remember looking at her going, oh, my gosh, that was my English teacher <laughs> when I was at school. So, yeah, it was a great great little school to to go in and then I went to Cooper High School up the road when we started high school from there. Did you watch much cricket? Did you become a fan because you were so close to the Gabba? We watched a bit of cricket but um, I can't remember being a huge fan. Oh it didn't rub off? No not in that way but it was just something that was exciting. You just knew it was exciting because everybody was excited about it so you knew it was it was something something big. Yeah. You said you assimilated really well. Did you miss Croatia? Um, not to to my memory that I can remember that, missing Croatia. Uh, probably missed the snow. And um, it's funny you should say that too because um, the older I get, the more I miss it. That's an interesting thing. Have you been back? I have, yeah. Sorry, Mark. It's funny, um, just like the older you get, the more you have a yearning for your homeland. It's really weird. Um, so, um, I have a daughter who had never been to Croatia. So, um, in 2017, I think, we were planning a trip overseas. Luckily, we've done some travelling, thank goodness. And um, was going on this trip with um, family friends, um, Uncle Chris and Auntie Betty, I call them. And they're not my uncle and auntie, they're George's uncle and auntie. And I call them that. And he'll always say, I'm not your, you know, uncle. And I go, yes, I know that, Uncle Chris. That's just <laughs> what I call him. And we were going on this holiday and we decided we were going to go through Eastern Europe. And um, I said, well, we'll have to go to... Croatia if we're going to you know Belgium and Czechoslovakia and we're right in that eastern zone and they really didn't have Croatia on their list of places they wanted to see and I said well if we're going that's we have to go there and they said okay well we'll do that and then I was having lunch with Georgia one day she was in Brisbane then at uni and she was sort of growing up. She had done some travelling with me as a young young girl, but now she's getting older. She was saving money to go on a holiday with her uni friends, you know, girlfriends doing the young thing that you do. And we're going on this holiday, and she, I had asked her earlier if she wanted to come with us, you know, with the oldies. And she said, um, no, 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 I don't want to come because, you know, I'm saving money. I'm going to go on a holiday with my friends. I'm so, okay, great. So we're having lunch and I was telling her about our holiday and then I told her about Croatia and she said, what do you mean Croatia? I said, well, we're going to here and there and we're going to go to Croatia. And she said, she just burst into tears. And she said, you can't go to Croatia without me. And I said, well, you said you don't want to go on this holiday. And she said, well, I didn't know you were going to Croatia. So this was like last minute, like we're like three weeks out or something from this trip <laughs> and so I <laughs> I have to go to the travel agent um, here in Gympie, Gympie Travel, Deb that I see, Debbie's always been a fabulous um, help to me and I said oh my god Deb I'm in trouble 
I need to add another passenger to my entire itinerary. <laughs> so she organized it and made it happen. So um, we went off on this trip. And um, leading up to this trip, oh my gosh, it's a long story. How long have we got? Leading, <laughs> <laughs> leading up to this um, trip to go to Croatia, one of the things that I wanted to do was to go and visit my mother's grave. So um, backtracking a little bit, when we came here in 71, two years later, my mum was um, killed in a hit and run accident. So we lost her very early on. Anyway, um, so I wanted to take my daughter to visit her grandma. And I was going to visit my grandma as well. So it was something that um, has always been in the plan. Anyway, when we were going there, Uncle Chris said, I hope you know where you're going. And I go, well, I sort of know where I'm going. <laughs> and so I did some Googling and trying to find my mother's grave, um, which was very difficult to find. I couldn't find anything really that was helpful or useful. I even rang the um, Croatian consulate in Canberra to ask for some advice about how to find something like that. They basically said, um, the best thing you do is just is a small town, go to the town and just go to your local church, go to the priest or go to the cemetery and talk to someone there and just talk to someone local and they'll set you straight. I thought, great, easy, talk to someone local. Um, I haven't spoken Croatian for over 50 years and I'm like, oh, I'm a bit rusty <laughs> with my Croatian. How did it go? Um, well, what I ended up doing was um, buying a book, How to Speak Croatian, How to Learn Croatian. And I just would play this CD a bit like people these days play podcasts when they're driving. So when I was driving to Brisbane for various things, I would just play this CD and just listening um, to the to the language. And it just like, it opened up a vault inside my head. It just opened up this vault and just it just started flooding back to me. It was just incredible. Did and that surprise you that you still had it stored? It didn't surprise me. I always felt like I had it because every now and then you'd, you'll hear something on the news, Croatian or even in a movie, and you can understand what they're saying, but it's hard to actually speak back because you struggle finding the words. But you understand what they're saying to you. You just struggle talking back. So I did that. And um, I said, Uncle Chris said, um, you know, we're going a long way. <laughs> you better know where we're going, what we're doing, because we don't speak Croatian. <laughs> and when we went to this, like if you go to Croatia or any of these countries, if you go to Dubrovnik or Split, everybody speaks English. Because tourism, you know, is, is their biggest economy. So, you know, wherever you go, people speak English. It's, it's part of, um, you know, their, almost their job employment that they need to speak English. But, of course, in those countries, as you know, they speak many languages. They're, most of them bilingual, trilingual at least. So um, anyway, I thought I'd, you know, doing well, learning how to speak the language. And we were in Zagreb and to go to, I was born in Vukovar, uh, which was uh, actually the first town that was bombed in the Civil War in 1991, which is what I remember seeing on the news the first when it first came on the news 
How did you feel when you saw it? Shocking. Mm. It was shocking, but not surprised mm. because uh, Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, they had talked about a war for many, many years, mm. many, many years. Um, and they always said, and I even remember it as a kid, that uh, President Tito was the only thing that kept that country together. He kept them together for many, many, many years. Um, so I was shocked but not, not surprised. I knew it was coming. People talked about it for years. But I was shocked that it was my, my hometown mm. that was on the news. That was um, shocking. So on this big trip, this plan to go um, back to Croatia, we had to drive uh, east from Zagreb for about three hours or three and a half hours inland to get to my hometown. Um, and I had done my research, you know, I had my birth certificate and I knew the name of the street, you know, where I lived when I was um, a kid and the, obviously, you know, the town. And I tried looking at some grave cemeteries, grave sites, but couldn't really find anything specific, but there was more than one cemetery in the town. And then um, we were driving along and we're getting closer to the town. And I remember this, because it was June, July, so it's their summer, the most magnificent sunflower field I've ever seen in my life. It was beautiful. Went for kilometers, it was just beautiful. And we're just on the outskirts of hitting the town and um, we had, because um, we were driving, this was a driving holiday, so my um, Auntie Betty had made up this CD of, you know, however many songs, and we just played it over and over in a loop for the hours on end that we were driving. And as we came close to the border, to the town, that song came on, um, Feels Like Home. Do you know that song? Mm. And it was just the timing of it. It wasn't planned. It just happened. It's just the song that came on as we came in. And um, we all burst into tears. I think even Uncle Chris had a tear in his eye because of just, I don't know, just the enormity of it. And anyway, when we got into town, we went driving around. We went, um, we're trying to use the Navman. We went into um, what they call, there's a street called Cemetery Road, most cities have you know a street called cemetery road i thought that's a good place to start let's start <laughs> let's start at cemetery road and so we went there and we um, saw some guys up near the shed um workers i guess and we actually had a photo i had a photo of my mum's gravesite from when she was um, buried there back in 1973 so i had this photo to show them and Uncle Chris looks at the, you know, the workers at the shed and he goes, uh, you're up, off you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so off I went to talk to the gentleman um, and I started talking to them. And um, I don't think, um, you know, my daughter had never really heard me speak Croatian other than um, I taught her how to count to 10. That's the only <laughs> thing she can do is count to 10 <laughs> in Croatian. She's very proud of that. And um so I spoke to them, showed them my photo, and they said, um, there's nothing like that here in this cemetery. It's actually quite a tall tombstone. Uh, it's quite impressive, really. And it's a family plot, so she was taken back to be buried with her parents in her family plot. 
And they said, there's nothing like that here. Um, and so we didn't get far there. So then I thought, well, we'll go to um, my house because I have another address. So I have an actual address. We can go to that. So we went to the house to have a look at the house. And as we're like driving along into the street, I'm not sure which house it is yet, but you would see these houses and there's this beautiful big double-storey house with, I swear they had solar panels on the roof. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's that's probably my house. That's the house. That'll be it. No, of course it wasn't. <laughs> it's some other little shack down the road where I grew up. We just grew up in a little shack. And um, so we went there, knocked on the door, um, no answer. And then... I think we knocked again and then the lady came out from around the back. She, she'd been out in the yard, so she came out. So I was talking to her and I told her who I was, that you know I was born there, I lived there, and that I was um, looking for some family, if she knew of anyone. And she goes, I've only lived here 10 years, so I don't really know anyone from that far back. But she said, my neighbour across the road has lived here all her life, so she probably would know. So we went across the road to the neighbour, um, knocked on her door, and she was home, thankfully, so we had a chat to her. So this is me talking Croatian, because no one speaks English. Did you have an Aussie accent? Did they comment on that? No, they didn't. They didn't comment on that, so I don't know if I did <laughs> or not. Um, but I'm chatting to her, and she knows... She thinks she knows someone that I might be talking about. And then there's a neighbour down the road from her who knows a lot of people. He's a bit older. So we walk down to him. And this is, it's summer, it's, it's a hot day. It is so hot. And, um, and we have pulled up in this van when we hired our hire car, which we thought we were getting a hire car. We got this massive van for the four of us. You could fit 10 people in it. So we roll up everywhere we're going in this big mini bus thing. So people are looking at us everywhere thinking, what is this big car? Who are these people? So we went to this gentleman. You know, he was there. I remember he had a beer in his hand. He just had some stubbies on, no shirt because it was so hot. Um, and he's talking. And once we um, talked a little bit more, we actually found out that the lady that we spoke to initially across the road, that she goes, I think my best friend, Vesna, could be your cousin. And I go, well, I have a cousin called Vesna, <laughs> who I haven't seen for years. And she goes, she just lives two streets away. I could take you there. That could be your cousin. And I remember thinking, um, because they said, oh, you know, how will you know? And I said, no, I've got photos of my cousin when she was 10, 12 years old, something like that. And she um, she has big eyes, big googly eyes, I call them. It's the first thing you notice about her. She's just got big googly eyes. I remember saying, oh, if this lady has, like, big googly eyes, that'll be my cousin. I'll just know. So she takes us around to this house around, you know, a couple of streets away. We knock on the door and... Um, a lady answers the door with big googly eyes. <laughs> and we all burst into tears. And she burst into tears and she knew it was me. She wow. knew. Wow. She said, Branka, is that you? That's how they say my name in Croatia, Branka, not Branka. And she knew straight away wow. that it was me. 
was incredible. We're all crying. Everybody's crying. Then her um, mum lives with her at the back in the granny flat. She goes, I'll go get my mother, uh, which is my mother's sister, my aunt. Wow. So she goes and gets her. And um, you can just imagine everybody's screaming and crying and carrying on. That's huge. And, um, it's huge. And then my poor daughter and Uncle Chris and Auntie Betty, they can't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> they're just standing there being hugged and kissed by people um, but they can't understand a word of anything that's going on I'm the one doing all the talking and trying to translate etc they don't speak English um, so we had um, you know, a cup of tea there and some something to eat and we're chatting away and we, you know, we told her why I'm there that I wanted to take my daughter to see her grandmother and um, told her where we were, and she said, that's not the right cemetery. And then she obviously knew the, her plot and the picture, and she said, you'll never find it with that photo. She said that cemetery was bombed in the war oh, in wow. 1991. And when I remember one of the first things I saw on the news is the water tower in the town was bombed. They tried to bomb the water tower, and my mum's cemetery was right beside the water tower. So it was completely destroyed in the war and the family redid it and now it looks completely different. And if I had gone there with that photo by myself, I would have never found it because it doesn't exist. It's mm. gone. So then she took us to her plot, to, to the new one, which is right beside the water tower. So where I follow Croatia on Instagram and every now and then you'll get a beautiful photo of the water tower and the sunset behind it. And I say, hi, mum, because I know she's right there. Um, so it was a beautiful day and we found her. And we spent a few hours there. And um, surprisingly, in Croatia, they, um, they care for their past relatives like you wouldn't believe. They keep their grave sites going for years on end. And when we went to her gravesite, she had fresh flowers and candles lit because my cousin had been there that morning to clean it and put fresh flowers and candles on, on there, not knowing we were showing up that day. Just couldn't believe it. Everything just kind of fell into place. If one of these people wasn't home on one of these doors that we knocked on, then the chain would have been broken and it wouldn't have happened. We may not have found them. We would have never found her with my photo because it doesn't exist mm. um, either. So if just one little link in the chain didn't happen, we wouldn't have found her, but we did. So it was, it was the most incredible day of my life, I think. We'll never forget it. It was amazing. How was your daughter? Oh, just amazed she loved it well this is how much she loved it mark and i'm not happy about this but anyway she loved it so much that the next year the very next year she decided to go back to croatia with her friends <laughs> so she went back for a holiday in croatia again the next year so the holiday she had already planned to have with her friends 
she told them that they had to go back to Croatia, not that she was going back to see the gravesite, but they went to Croatia because it's so beautiful. And they went to Dubrovnik and they went to, um, uh, they had to do this thing there called um, Sail Croatia. They do these yacht holidays, cruising type holidays, all the young ones. And that it's have a more, it's like when we used to do the Kentiki tours in our day. This is their Kentiki type thing. And so she went the next year, but the way it worked out, which they didn't plan as young girls, um, the soccer was on, the soccer cup was on, and Croatia did really well in the soccer. And they were in Dubrovnik when Croatia won the like the quarterfinal um, in the soccer World Cup, and it's like it's like the Kiwis. <laughs> it's like soccer is a religion over there for them. It's like the Kiwis and their union. They're all blacks. It's like that. So it was massive. And I remember my daughter um, live messaging me on Facebook. So it was like four o'clock in the morning for me when she rang. Um, and she was in Dubrovnik and she was showing me the fireworks in the night sky because they were celebrating the win of the soccer. So I'm in my bed at four o'clock in the morning watching Dubrovnik and the fireworks because they're like right there um, on the yacht. It was the most amazing thing. So she had the most amazing holiday <laughs> and everywhere she went, um, everybody was on a high and having a great time because they were doing so well in the soccer. And when she was on her yacht, her sail Croatia thing, um, she said to one of the barmen at one stage, she said to him, she's having fun. She goes, um, I think you should give me half price drinks because I'm half Croatian and I should get half price drinks. <laughs> And he said, you're not Croatian. She goes, yes, I am. He goes, oh, yeah, prove it. So she goes, I can count to 10. And he goes, go ahead, count. <laughs> so she counted to 10 in Croatian, which he couldn't believe. And then when she uh, rang me um, at 4 o'clock in the morning, she said, here, talk to my mum. She's Croatian. <laughs> and I think she tried very hard, but she never got half-price drinks. <laughs> she tried really hard, but she didn't get half-price drinks. But anyway, she had a beautiful holiday um, again. And then, uh, speaking of yearning, I wanted to go back to Croatia next year uh, for my 60th birthday. Um, but it's not going to happen. Not with the way the world is at the moment with COVID. I don't think next year we'll still be open to the world of you know travel. So I'll have to put that off. But I will go back. It just won't be next year. I don't know when it'll be. It'll be in the next few years. But I definitely want to go back again. As I said, the older I get, the more I have this yearning to just go back. What it's, do you put that down to? I don't know. It's just, it's just in me. The older I get, the more I want to go back there. And, um, and I want to um, dance. I want to dance. We have this dance um, called the Kolo. It's like our Zorba. Everybody knows the Greek Zorba, you know, and you're all in a line and you follow each other and you go in a circle. We, we do exactly the same thing, um, but it's just not known as well as the Greek Zorba. And I remember doing that as a kid. I remember dancing. And when we went to um, Croatia, I wanted to do that. And I missed one um, opportunity. We were just, I think we were a day late for this event that they had on where they were doing that, like a little mini festival. And I missed it because we were a day late. So I missed seeing what I wanted to see and doing the dance. So 
I still have that on my bucket list and I still have to go back because I need to do that. Do you associate with Croatians here, like a Croatian club, the Greek club and that sort of thing here in, uh, in Australia? Um, did back in the day um, when we were young, or back in Brisbane, I should say, probably. But no, not here. I haven't. I don't really know, um, apart from my sister, I don't really know anyone. I know there's a Croatian club on the Gold Coast, um, and I've been meaning to go there, actually, and I will do that at some point. But I haven't just got there yet. You came to Australia, you mastered English fairly quickly. Did you enjoy school? Is it something that uh, you seem to excel at? What was so special about school? Uh, I loved school, actually. Um, I always enjoyed school. Um, and not that I want to go into details, really, but school was a sanctuary for myself and my sister because um, after my mum passed away, um, oh, we were there with, well, my stepdad, her dad. He, he became a chronic alcoholic and he was not a nice person to live with. So it was really tough and school was our sanctuary. School was where we were free and happy um, and I always loved school, um, enjoyed my friends there. It was the one place I could be free and not worry about what's going to happen. Um, I ended up being school captain in 1980, uh, in year 12 at Cooper High. Um, it was a big honour in those days. Yes, yeah. And shortly after that, I ran away from home and took my sister with me. What was the motivation in that? Uh, to save our lives. Can you share that? Um, not really. Just got to that point where it was so rough that if we didn't go, we both felt like something like that could happen. Domestic violence uh, is a real thing. And when I see it on TV, yeah, I can relate. Back in those days, I don't know why. I mean, these days it's kids helpline and stuff like that. But back in those days, you know, you could hear what was going on in someone's house. And we used to think, why doesn't anybody call the police? Why doesn't anybody come and help us? Why doesn't anybody do something? But nobody did anything. So it was up to us to do something. And I remember going, because I was 18, so I could leave home, but my sister wasn't. And I went to the um, Woolloongabba police and said to them who I was, where I lived, and what I was doing, why I was doing it, where I was going, and that I was taking my sister with me. So they knew everything. So when we were reported as missing, we weren't missing. They knew exactly where we were, but they didn't um, come and get us and force us to come back home. How were the police? From memory, great. Because I guess um, if we had left home and not done that, then probably would we'd be missing persons. They'd come looking for us. Um, why did I think to do that? I have no idea. It's just what I did. And I remember, um, oh, and the only other reason we could do it is 
when I turned 18, I think I got about $5,000 from the public trustee for my mother's death. Um, so we thought we were millionaires. $5,000 back in 1980, we thought we had so much money. But we didn't. It ran out within 12 months of trying to live on our own. Um, and, and I started university and my sister started year 11 in a new school. And I tried to you know, go to uni uh, and support myself through uni and support her. So we ran out of money fairly quickly um, and had to struggle, you know, both had part-time jobs. And I think in third year of uni, a scholarship opportunity came up. And I think there was five scholarships and there was about 25 of us that applied in a class of about 50. And luckily I was lucky enough to get one of those scholarships. And that's how I got through uni for the rest of uni, because I had a scholarship. University uh, is something that is a good time for a lot of people. Was it a good time for you? It was a good time, but not as good a time as my daughter had when she went to university. <laughs> because I had to support myself. Um, so I didn't get to do a lot of the partying and the um, stuff that you can do at uni, because I was working all the time. Uh, working or studying and I didn't get to live on campus as in college which is a huge great experience and I wanted my daughter to have that experience and so I made sure she did. Um, I lived with in a flat with some other uni students um, and but I, I really enjoyed university you know I enjoyed what I was doing I enjoyed my friendships um, but yeah it was it was tough because I had to do it on my own. But I nearly didn't get there <laughs> as well. Oh, my God. Why do we go on these tangents? When we moved from, well, when we ran away from home, I didn't know that back then, um, I don't know, there was a thing called QTAC where they would send you information about getting into uni. But then we had a, a letter of offer comes from the university, like a first, first round of offers comes to say, you've been given this offer, you have to reply. Well, I didn't get that letter of offer because it went to the wrong address because I had informed QTAC about my new address but not the university. So I missed out on my letter of offer and then second round of offers came out and I still didn't get anything and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is terrible. What is going on? So I rang to find out about that and they said, oh, we sent you a letter of offer first round. You didn't reply, so you lost your spot. And I'm like, I didn't get it. So I had to talk to the dean of the university and um, they basically said that I'd have an offer for the following year unless someone dropped out and then I'd be first in line. And anyway, someone dropped out and I got in. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I would have had to wait another year before I could actually start my course. And that, that means supporting myself for another year before actually getting in. And, and I remember at the time, because it took a while to know whether I was in or not, so I went looking for a job. And I remember going to Maya for an uh, interview for a job, and I didn't get the job. And I just thought, this is insane, this is ridiculous. Why didn't I get this job? And the lady said I was too good for that position, and she refused to give it to me. <laughs> so I didn't get the job. But a couple of weeks after that, I think, I got my offer when somebody had... Um, yeah, dropped out of, from there. And then I started uni. So, crazy. 
The relationship with your sister must have been pretty tight, though, working through both of you had jobs, both of you were struggling, and both of you have gone through this hardship. How was your relationship with your sister? My relationship with my sister now is fantastic, but went through a rough time at one point in life, more because of her struggles and demons in her life, which I won't go into, but our relationship is, is beautiful beautiful but um we often say we should write a book but um yeah it's been an interesting life for sure so you went on and studied dentistry at university was that your first pick it was my first pick um and i think i also had pharmacy and teaching but i always wanted to be a dentist and people say why but I just, I remember from being very young, going to the dentist, I, you know, I was always, I never had any fear of the dentist. I was just so impressed with the whole thing, you know, and I was probably a painful, painful child as a patient because I wanted to know what everything was, not out of fear, but what is that? What are you doing? What is that? What is this? What is that? So I, I always wanted to be a dentist. And I remember being very young when they say, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I remember girls would be saying, I want to be a teacher, a hairdresser, a, a flight attendant, you know, all that sort of stuff. And they'd come to me and I'd go, I want to be a dentist. Go, Why do you want to be a dentist? I just like that. I think it'll be good to be the dentist. So anyway, <laughs> uh, for some reason, that's what I wanted and that's what I ended up doing. That is so out of left field, though. For a young girl with the domestic uh, abuse that you've had to deal with, dentistry mm. is just a really interesting calling and a great vocation. Were there many females doing it at that stage? Um, in my year level of about 50, 52 students, it was one in four approximately. Really? Yeah, so about 40 males to like 10, 10 female students. Um, that has changed over the years where it's been a bit more level um, over the years, back and forth, you know, more like 40 to 50%. But um, I think in dentistry, there's still only about, I don't know, 35%, 40% maybe female um, dentists. A lot of people are afraid of the dentist. So what's, Mm. from your point of view, what's an average day look like? Uh, An average day for us, um, I remember um, my previous boss, my old boss, saying when you you know when you come to work because it's you know it's a full on intense kind of job. That as soon as you step through that door or cross the you know the floorboards, you're basically on, as in like you're on stage. So you have to leave all your worries and, and troubles and woes behind, because now you're here for for the people that are coming to see you because they have their own worries and troubles and they're trying to get help from you. So that that's how your day goes. You're spending your day helping people, obviously, like you just said, um, people have a fear, anxiety. It's huge. You spend your day trying to help people get through that in the best way that you can. And you take on board, you know, a lot of their fear and anxiety. And at the end of the day, you are exhausted, really, because you spent all day helping helping people through that. But one of the things I love the most is... Um, and I've had that happen many, many times over the years, 
when I have a patient that comes to me for the first time, they've never met me, and they have their own story about dentistry and where it's taken them through their life, and they're so terrified that um, they have trouble just parking the car in the street beside your building, let alone coming through the door and then sitting in your chair. Like, that's how tough it is for them. And they'll be, you know, they'll cry, they'll burst into tears, and um, some of them are quite embarrassed by that because, they, you know, I'm a grown adult and I come here and I'm, you know, I'm a mess. And I love nothing more than getting them from that point to a point where they come to see me down the track, whether it's a few months or whatever, and they'll come to a point where they'll come and see me with a smile on their face. Um, they don't need Valium to walk through the door. They don't need IV sedation to be treated. We have a laugh, we have a joke, they stir me, I stir them back, and they walk out the door and we have a joke and say, you know, the most painful part is when they go out the back desk to pay for it. And we, because <laughs> <laughs> that's the most painful part. And they give me a hug and say, see you next time. So to turn a person around from, from the person who has trouble parking the car in the street to walk through your door to that point, which, as I said, has happened many, many times, you change a person's life. You change their confidence. You change how they feel about themselves. Um, and I find that one of the most satisfying things that I can do. So I really enjoy doing that and helping people through that. Do you find many people do need that sort of sedation of some description? Is that a high percentage? Not necessarily a high percentage, but quite common. Mm-hmm. You know, we do it in our practice. You know, probably every week, I'd say. Yeah, so it's common. It's not a high percentage, and there's different reasons for it sometimes as well. So, um, but it's um, Valium. Sometimes we use as well but what what I look forward to which is not going to be something I can enjoy though is when the baby boomers like myself and yourself probably when we die out which is going to be another 30 to 50 years we will take away all those bad memories and bad experiences from going to the dentist as kids and young people because it's not like that anymore these days, kids come to the dentist and they have great experiences and they love it and they walk in and there's no drama. So when we finally die off, that stigma will go with it, but we won't be here to enjoy it. I won't be here to enjoy it because I have to go. What started um, it in the first place? Oh, it was just difficult back in those days. You know, we didn't have the equipment we have now. We didn't have the techniques we have now. Um, it was rough. <laughs> course it was rough and yeah so there's people don't forget and it's one of those things they don't forget they'll say I was five years old and they remember you know they don't remember much about being five but they remember going to the dentist and a certain thing happening that wasn't (laughs) fun so yeah that's just how it is but it's much ask anyone who goes now and even people who come and haven't been for years they'll go oh gee things have changed yeah Definitely, and change for the better, obviously. They'll say, oh, wow, if I'd known it was like this, I would have come years ago, you know. What's the biggest change in your time as a dentist? What's the biggest change that you've noticed in clinical practice? I would probably say the technology. You know, the technology is just massive, and it's something I've had to learn because when I went through uni, we didn't have that. 
technology. So it's something that you've now, now in university they have it. They have all the technology like the CAD CAM dentistry and stuff like that and, and scanning instead of impressions, all that sort of stuff. So the technology is amazing and uh, we've learnt as we've gone but now at university they it's part of your course they you know teach you that so it's like everywhere I guess technology and you know with CAD CAM now they can they can build an arm etc we do everything we do like I I say to some of my patients who work FIFO out in the mines etc everything that we do is similar to what they do except we just do it in a minute scale (laughs) working in a difficult environment <laughs> at times so like the cad cam making a little crown you know um in one visit on the day and it's the same as what people are doing now but um we just do it on a minute scale because i believe you're a bit of an innovator with that cad cam technology oh uh, well the, our practice here in gimpy because my um previous boss brad wright was he was very much on the forefront with technology so 20 years ago, when I first started there, he had heard about this CAD CAM CEREC dentistry and was really keen about it and wanted to get it. It came from Germany, had been in Germany for many years before that, um, and then America and then Australia. And I think um, the practice in Gympie, which was Brad Wright Dental back then, was the second practice in Australia, I believe, to get that CEREC system and he was beaten to the punch by some dentist in um, Sydney. And I don't remember who that was. So um, he was the first in Queensland anyway, (laughs) uh, which was um, great. And he taught me how to use a system because um, it's not something that I was taught at uni because it didn't exist, you know, back then. So, yeah, very exciting. Yeah, did it inspire you even further to get this new technology and being able to implement it? Oh, absolutely. And then the technology, even if you look back now, 20 years ago, was a lot rougher than it is now. So um, the computer technology improves. So every 18 months to two years, we upgrade the system and upgrade the machine. And the camera has gotten better and better and better over, over time. So much so that in the beginning, the camera was a still camera and you would take still shots. But you had to be so steady that I would literally have to say to the patient, hold your breath, don't breathe because if you just moved just a tiny little bit, the image was blurred and you couldn't use it. Now it's not a camera, it's a video camera. So now we actually scan and take a video. And of course you can move, you can do whatever. So, so much easier than it was. So it improves all the time, the technology itself. Where do you see it going in the next 50 years then? Oh my goodness. Well, I don't think we'll ever get to dentistry where you don't need a dentist. I don't think robots will be able to do everything. <laughs> you still need a person, I believe. So uh, I really don't know. But it's it's just um, technology just keeps improving all the time. Um, I'll be retired by then. So who knows? I don't know. Now, you're a very busy person. Fundraising is a big part of your life. What is the thing that motivates you to raise money to help others? Um, well, I think <laughs> one of the reasons I ended up here was because you saw me at the races the other day um, and you didn't recognise me because I looked a bit different that day because I was um, incognito, dressed up as a... Priscilla. Priscilla, queen of the desert. Yes, <laughs> I was a drag queen, my Shimona, 
yeah, is my drag name. And I was with some friends there because we were fundraising because we, um, yeah, because we're doing the Variety Bash this year, fundraising for that. So um, the Variety Bash is a children's charity. Variety is a children's charity raising money for sick and um, disadvantaged kids. Um, and it, it, it came about, it was, it was a roundabout way that it came about that we were doing this. And I have fundraised for breast cancer and different things um, in the past, but this particular event we're doing this year uh, came about through um, some of my friends last year, um, visiting one of our friends who's um, been suffering for the past eight years fighting cancer. Uh, it's been a very, very tough battle. And she was having a bit of a rough time last year. COVID was around this time, maybe um, May, and we'd just all been through our lockdown and nobody really knew what COVID was, where it was going to take us, what was going to happen. And she was having some treatment and having a rough time and they decided that they would cheer her up. And um, for whatever reason, they decided they were going to dress up as Priscilla's Queen of the Desert and come down to her place, which is coming down a Noosa River Canal on, on a Noosa taxi. Old taxi driver didn't know what was happening. Um, and land on her doorstep singing um, ABBA songs and just showing up. And they showed up out of the blue. She had no idea they were coming. Her husband knew, but she had no idea. And they just rocked up and she didn't even know who they were at first because they looked so different. And they also um, made her a Priscilla as well. They bought a, a wig for her and an outfit for her. Then they spent some time and they did her makeup for her and they had some champagne and just, um, you know, sang ABBA songs and just reminisced about life and just really just picked her up basically because she was so down. And it kind of started from there and they were just going on about this Priscilla thing and something came up about um, doing the Priscilla Queen of the Desert thing and how cool it would be to do it in a bash. And her husband um, had done a variety bash some years earlier and so he had a car that had been used in the bash and it was down in Forster in New South Wales. And he said, we've got a car and you can have it. We'll get it up here for you and we'll get it ready. And they basically, basically donated the car and um, getting it roadworthy, road ready. They've had to strip it because the year that they did it was, it was very much a boy's car. This is so funny. It was such a boy's car and it was called a Beerbulance. So instead of ambulance, it was a Beerbulance. <laughs> and they had two big kegs in the back. Um, and the, everything was covered, you know, with beer stickers and stuff like that. And now it's a Priscilla, Queen of the Desert car <laughs> covered in Priscilla's stuff and completely different. It doesn't look like a boy's car at all. And it's got a, a big stiletto shoe on the roof, like, like you need to, obviously, as a Priscilla's car. So it's got, going to be completely different. But um, they're doing up the car, getting it ready for us. And... The saddest part is that um, they were both going to be part of our pit crew because she has always wanted to do this because her husband did it mm. and she always wanted to do it. So it was on her bucket list and they were going to be our pit crew and come with us um, for the trip. 
but we don't think that will happen now because she's really, really unwell at the moment. And um, she, we message her all the time and she watches what we're doing and says, keep doing what you're doing because you're doing it for me and I'm doing it with you, through you, watching you do it. So it's really kind of bittersweet because we know she's struggling and we want her to be there for us. She may not be there with us, but it's just tough. But we're forging on, going ahead. We're still doing it. We're doing our fundraising. We're doing the hustle, as we say. Um, um, Selling raffle tickets and um, local businesses have been fantastic. We've got some fantastic raffle prizes, donations from local businesses. How can people help if they want to get involved? What can they do? The easiest way to help if you want to support us is um, if you go on our Facebook page we've got a Priscilla's Variety Bash Facebook page and there's a link on there where you can just simply make a donation tax deductible donation that you can um, go through Uh, we have a fantastic raffle going from uh, Tire Power who've donated $500 worth of tires um, for that so you can get tickets for that through us when we're at the pub or at Tire Power themselves and we go on the 30th of August is when the race goes and it oh this is another beautiful story Mark it starts (laughs) it starts in Winton and when I was a young graduate dentist um, who had got that scholarship as I said um, that's where you went that's where you started I believe that's where I started because with the scholarship you're bonded to the government back then so for me it was two years I had a two-year scholarship so bonded to go wherever they sent you so my posting ended up being Winton and I had never heard of Winton I didn't know where Winton was so I remember getting the map out as you do in the old days you know that we didn't have internet and I was looking up the Queensland coast and I'm going up and down the coast <laughs> <laughs> looking for Winton and I can't find it so I went inland a bit and I still couldn't find it and I kept going inland till I went to the about oh, about the dead center of Queensland and there it was I found Winton and I think I burst into tears and thought oh my god somebody hates me why are they sending me out to whoop whoop you know out to the middle of nowhere because it's that's not rural Queensland it's called remote remote Queensland um, but I went there because I had no choice because you either had to go where you're sent or you could buy yourself out, you, which was about maybe, say, $25,000. You could buy your scholarship out and not go. Well, I couldn't do that because I didn't have any money. Um, so I went and best years of my life, had a ball. I stayed there six years instead of two. <laughs> and I think I was the longest serving dentist they ever had out at Winton. I just had a ball. It was so much fun. I had so many people out there in the same boat as me, you know, they just graduated um, teachers college. They just graduated as a nurse. They just graduated and they all got sent out. So we're all in the same boat. We all had to just, you know, make the most of it. Um, And Winton was uh, about 1,100 people population, so just over a thousand. And you had to make your own fun. There was nothing there. Um, to make you know make fun you made your own fun which is what we did Um, and we would just have parties and dinner parties and different things and I I learned to water ski out at Winton you'd say how do you do that you go to some property somebody's place and they would have the biggest dam that's like a lake 
you've never seen anything like it and you just go around on this dam that you just go for kilometers like a lake and we'd water ski and do different things and I remember being driven out uh, to see some dinosaur tracks long before it became a big thing and they discovered even more and they now have you know made a dinosaur museum and all of that um, I remember seeing that back in the day when there was just nothing there um, as well and then I used to um, fly out to Bulia once a month to uh, do the clinic at Bulia two, uh, two days a month so we'd overnight and that was in a four-seater little plane that the local pharmacist was the pilot so the local pharmacist would fly us out to Bulia and I remember the first time I went because this is like January February it was so hot I was so sick I've never been so sick in my life I was so air sick this little plane just bounced around in the turbulence it was terrible um, and I think for months and months after that I used to have to have a, a, a shot to actually get on the plane because it just made me so ill so the doctor would give me a shot before I get got on the plane so that I could actually get there and and work um, but that was a great experience and I remember seeing one of the first times flying out to Bulia, for example, uh, one of the first times after a flood, because it, it does flood there from time to time. And then it just looks like this island in the middle of nowhere. It's just water, this town surrounded by water. Just incredible to see it from the sky. Uh, saw that a few times in the six years that I was there. They probably had a few floods um, as well. And then... Um, in 1989 because I went out there in 1986 um, I got talked into going into the Royal Flying Doctor Service Queen of the Outback quest and raising money obviously for the Flying Doctor Service which we did and I remember doing that and I remember thinking you know they're saying oh how much money are we going to raise and I think our goal was 5,000 and I said oh no we could do better than that 10,000 they all just nearly died and said there's no way we can raise $10,000 I think we ended up raising $17,000 something the most they'd ever raised in the town um, and I won the Queen of the Outback and I was Winton's first Queen of the Outback winner and it's always at Winton every second year because it's with the um, Outback Festival that they do in September and they have the Royal Flying Doctor Service Outback Festival every second year um, which is uh, a lot of fun. So we did really well. We raised great money there. We had a lot of fun. We had lots of raffles again. We had um, a fashion show, luncheons. We did a progressive dinner, I remember, which was so much fun because you you know, ev you could walk everywhere. So we walked from house <laughs> to house because it's when a little town where nobody had to drive. And um, so this is 1989 and, you know, we had a, you know, the big boom box on your shoulder no CDs or anything back then. And I remember um, that song, The Proclaimers, um, I Would Walk 500 Miles, was a big hit that year. So every time we went from house to the next house, that's the song we, we would play on loop over and over, <laughs> uh, which it got more and more fun and rowdier and rowdier as we headed for dessert. So <laughs> that was a great uh, fundraising event, I remember, um, that night. But so, you started fairly early, fundraising. It must be part of you. What do you put it down to? I enjoy giving. I just love giving. 
um, I've been like that all my life, like with presents and things. I love giving people presents and I like to see the look on their face and the joy that it brings them or a surprise, something that they, you know, really wanted. You know, you, you might, it's like you um, um, put things in your mind, f- store it for later. Like you might hear something in a conversation that somebody might say something they like or something they, you know, looked look for. And then I'll go, oh, so-and-so really likes this or wants this or whatever. And so I'll grab that at some point. And, and then they'll be so surprised because I'll go, how did you know? How did you know I liked that? <laughs> and I'll think, oh, I think I heard it somewhere along the line. But I've always enjoyed giving. Um, I've just been like that. I don't know why in particular, but it's just something that I like to do. And I, I have a birthdays for example um, I love I love birthdays I love my own birthday and it's a bit of a joke really now and I think it's probably because as a kid I never really got to have the birthdays that I wanted so I missed out I felt like I missed out so now um, I really make the most of my birthday because you know that's it's my birthday so I have a joke with my friend I'll go it's my birthday in three months it's my birthday in two months so it's like a countdown to my birthday so then it's a birthday festival when the time comes. So it's not just the day. We've got to celebrate leading up to it and then we have it. Then we wind down, celebrate getting over it. And then um, at work the other day, because it was my birthday on the Friday, we were having a joke about it. And um, I think Mark said, so next year, obviously, it's your big one. So I suppose we'll have to put a banner across the bridge in Gimpy. <laughs> And I went, wow, what a fabulous idea. What a great idea. I said, now you've said that, you're going to have to work on that and put a banner up. So it's just a bit of a joke um, that we have. But yeah, I enjoy my birthday and I enjoy celebrating other people's birthdays as well, making them feel special. As such a giving person, how do you receive? Are you a good receiver? I am. I am a good receiver. Um, And... Oh, one of the things I think I received, oh, actually I received some beautiful presents for my birthday this year, some beautiful, lovely presents. But one of the best things I received over the years was um, after my husband and I separated some years back, um, one Christmas, my daughter was only eight and it was Christmas morning we're having Christmas together in the morning. I like to be home Christmas morning and I'm happy to drive to Brisbane then for the Christmas family get together. So this was our first morning um, together and there was all these presents under the tree that she had wrapped. I thought, wow, she's done so well, you know, for an eight-year-old. Anyway, she gives me all these presents and I'm unwrapping them one at a time and they're all things from around the house. (laughs) that she had gone and found and she'd wrapped my perfume and she'd wrapped, I'm a big Elvis fan, so she'd wrapped this little picture frame of Elvis that I have. And she just went around the house, things that I like, that are mine, that I love, she wrapped them and put them under the tree. And they were my presents. And it was just the sweetest thing because it was her way um, of um, giving to me when she's an eight-year-old and she's got no money and she can't go shopping to give you anything. And oh, obviously, you know, made me cry. And I just thought, oh my God, this is so beautiful. So it's one of the sweetest things that I ever received was these presents from my daughter on that Christmas morning. What floats your boat about Elvis? 
oh, I think he's the most gorgeous <laughs> man I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I just do. And um, I love his music and um, I've always loved him. I, I remember I think I was 15 years old when he passed away. I remember being at school um, and I just cried all day. And I, August 1977. 1977, that's right. And um, there's not very many public figures that I have cried for, like um, that have passed away, I, but I certainly cried for Elvis. I cried for Princess Di when she passed away. Because um, they're putting the statue out for her at the moment. There's <laughs> lots of controversy about that. That's right. But um, I was pregnant at the time, not in... 97 when she passed away and we were actually um, in Toowoomba at our antenatal course when it actually happened and so as a, you can imagine a room full of pregnant women full of <laughs> hormones and this is the news that we get well I don't know how they finished that day it, it we were just blubbering mess all of us and it was really tough to get through that day our emotions just took over and I remember just feeling so sad for the little boys because um, I guess around the age I was when I lost my mum so I could really you know connect with that and I just felt so sad for them I, in, so I did I cried for for her um, and I don't think I've cried for anyone else it's interesting that she had such an effect on the whole world you know there's mm. not many people that you uh, will talk to that weren't affected by the death of Princess Diana. Why do you think that she made such a mark? Oh, well, so there you go again. She was a real, really generous, giving woman. She gave back to the world, and I think that was one of the biggest things. You know, she just gave of herself. Uh, you, you remember seeing those pictures of her in the AIDS communities, hugging the children and stuff like that. She was such a giver, and I think that resonates with people. And they accepted her for that, and she um, she wasn't this sort of um, you know person that you you couldn't relate to, maybe like you know some of the royals. Maybe she just seemed to relate, be so relatable. As they say, the people's princess. Ah, absolutely, yeah. And I think I think that's why. And she was so wonderful with her kids. You know, she was so natural and as we should be, without being stifled by her position. She just thought, no, I'm doing this. These are my kids and we're doing it my way. And that was a big thing uh, for her to do, I think, back in those days. Back to Winton. Oh, yes. <laughs> Why did you leave Winton? You did six years there. Then I believe then there was Roma and Chinchilla after that. Correct. Why did you make the move from Winton if you were having such a great time? Uh, well, I had met my husband-to-be at that point in time. Um, and I guess it was just time for both of us to move on with respect to career opportunities and things like that and maybe maybe get a bit closer to um, Brisbane to be closer to family not that I had um, I never had a desire to go back to Brisbane to live there since I left but I always enjoyed visiting and seeing the family because I'm very family orientated as well. So I love spending time with the family and that made it a bit easier. So I think, um, and I guess uh, curiously, Roma, two positions came up in Roma 
for the both of us. So we took that opportunity. And then when we moved to Chinchilla, the same thing happened. Um, two positions came up. So it was just one of those things. And that's why we ended up there as well. Then on to Gimpy. Why were you still looking? What were you looking for? Um, I think the, the plan was to just get closer to Brisbane a bit at a time without actually going to Brisbane, <laughs> really. Um, and once again, you know, jobs came up and, uh, and it was, well, it was a bit of a big thing back in those days because that was 1999 and Gympie was known as Helltown and it had a terrible reputation. And all our friends and family were saying, why are you going to Gympie? Like, it's a terrible place. That's the reputation that it had. Um, but we came, and I, I'm a firm believer, because, for example, living in Winton, my friends would say, and family for years, why are you out there? What is there to do? Why are you in Winton? I'm a firm believer that you can live anywhere in the world. And if you just have those you love and you know a handful of friends, you don't need a lot, you can have a great life no matter where you are because you make it what it is. Home is where you are, not not where, what city you're in. Home is what you make it. So you can live anywhere and have a wonderful life and a wonderful time. That's what, you know, Eskimos live where they live and they have a wonderful time and they think it's the best place <laughs> in the world. They wouldn't live anywhere else because that's what they know and that's what they love. So I knew that coming to Gympie, we would still make the most of it you know, this hell town, so-called hell town. Um, and it's been a wonderful uh, life in Gympie. I'm so pleased my daughter had the opportunity to grow up in a town like this. And I've been here now nearly 23 years. It's the longest that I've lived actually anywhere in my lifetime. So it really very much feels like home because it's the longest that I've lived anywhere. Um, and it's, you know, for me, it's a scop, what do they say, a hop, skip and a jump to Brisbane like it's no effort for me to go to Brisbane um, at all and um, even when we lived in Winton I remember we we drive to Brisbane from Winton for a 21st you know or a wedding or a weekend so you know it be, it becomes one of those things depends what you're used to whether a drive for two hours is a long drive or a short drive out in the country you get used to long drives that's it yeah so for me it's no big deal but I always have a joke with my family which I'm sure most people will relate to, that it always seems to be a much longer drive from Brisbane to Gympie than it is from Gympie to Brisbane. (laughs) 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 Because I seem to travel to Brisbane a lot more than they come to Gympie. And I'll go, you know, it's the same distance to come to Gympie. Mind you, my friends and family have come to Gympie many, many times. I'm just having a joke. And they love it. They love Gympie and, um, yeah, no, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great life and I enjoy it very much. Speaking of driving, the Variety Bash, you're starting at Winton. I'm taking you back to the early days. Tell us about the bash and what's going to happen or what you perceive might happen. Well, this is very interesting, actually, because I don't think we have any idea what we're in for. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, um, Saturday night when we were selling raffle tickets at the Phoenix, we went to this table and there was a gentleman there and he was wearing this jacket that had our Variety Bash 30 years. So he did the bash two years ago when they had their 30-year anniversary of the bash. So obviously we were picking his brain and talking to him. He was so lovely to talk to. And he basically said to us, there's a thing called bash lag. 
<laughs> and we said, what's bash lag? He said, well, you know how you get jet lag when you're traveling and you're you know, buggered at the end of it? He goes, you have a thing called bash lag. So after the, your trip, you will come home. And he said, you'll be exhausted for about two weeks <laughs> because it's just full on. You just go, go, go the whole time. But he did say, um, obviously, apart from having fun, you stop at schools and you stop at different places and it's just a huge thing for the town on the day everybody comes everybody's involved you have meals on wheels or the cwa or whoever it is cooking for you i uh, said so the food is magnificent they cater for you so well the kids come from everywhere they take the day off school if it's a you know school day um, and and it brings a lot of money into the community because we, you know, we pay for those meals that, that they're providing, etc. So it brings a lot of money into every community, um, as well as obviously the money that we raise. And I think I was looking it up the other day. Uh, Variety raises about two million dollars um, a year um, um, for the actual Variety Bash. And I think I was looking at um, some statistics, and they help. This is what the thing said. 234 kids per day every day is um, how they help so 88,000 kids per year so it's it's a it's huge actually so I'm looking forward to raising our goal so our goal is to raise $10,000 and we are going well we're well on the way we're about two-thirds of the way there so we'll definitely um, make our mark um, maybe a bit more so we'll be happy with that because we're kind of late starters um, very late starters because we only decided to do it about March and we didn't start fundraising till April so we're really starting very late <laughs> but we'll get there we're on the way we're doing really well you're hoping for ten thousand dollars are you surprised by the support that you've got so far oh the support has been amazing overwhelming people have been so generous we'll go um, at the races or at the pub we're selling raffle tickets or a money board and um, people will give us 50 bucks and we'll go oh, great um, so you want raffles or money board what do you want they go no no just take $50 they go yeah but what would you like they go nothing I don't want anything they just give us the money to support the variety club um, and so we see generosity like that all the time it's just incredible and um, and people will just give you you know, twenty dollars, and so I'll have four numbers on the money board, for example. So it's and the businesses, as I said earlier, have just been wonderful um, all around town. We've hit the pavement <laughs> and gone around, and the businesses have been really terrific as well. So it's been really good. What towns are you planning to visit during the bash? Where's it going during the uh, the whole journey, the epic journey? The epic journey. I think we go from Winton to Kainuna. Cloncurry, Bulya, Baduri. Well, that would be good to go back to Bulya and have a look. I know. And um, Birdsville is our halfway point. So we actually go to the Birdsville races. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> COVID permitting, all this is. So, you know, fingers crossed because that's nine weeks away is our actual departure. Um, and we spoke to um, someone recently and they said there's a bus going from Kandanga out to the Birdsville races 
And then as we've gone through talking to people, there's a number of people from Gympie and they say, oh, I'm going to the Birdsville races. So we're like, well, you won't miss us then when you get to the Birdsville races because we're the Priscillas and we'll be out there. So you won't miss us. So, um, yeah, hopefully it all work out. And then we go from there uh, back across to um, Dingo. Um, I can't quite remember the other town. We end up at Yapoon. That's our final stop. Um, so our team is car number 163, uh, which we I thought was quite good because 1 plus 6 plus 3 makes 10. So we're like, we're number 10. Um, and we are called Priscilla's Dust to Dory is our team name because we start in the Dust Bowl of Winton and we finish by the sea. So we're Priscilla's Dust to Dory, car number 163. What's the importance of car number 163? I have this number thing. So I have this number thing with number 34. Um, and for various different reasons. Um, so my mum passed away when she was 34, going on to 35. I always thought I was going to die when I turned 34. That's just what I thought. I don't know why. And the other reason I have number 34 in my life is when you wake up through the night and you just look over at the clock, I will do that and it'll be 3.34, 5.34. Doesn't matter. When I wake up and I look at that clock, it'll be something 34. Now, this has happened to me for you know more than 30 years. This is not something that's just recent. And I play little mind games with myself because I'll wake up and I'll go, no, nah, I'm not looking at the clock. I'm just not looking. I'm not doing it. So I'll lay there for a little while and I won't look. And then it'll get the better of me <laughs> and I will look. And then when I look, guess what? It's 34 on the clock. Yes. And <laughs> if I had looked when I first woke up before I started playing mind games with myself, it wouldn't have been 34. But I go, no, no, I'm not looking, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. And then I look and it's 34. So then, so I thought I would die when I was 34. What do you put that down to? And what happened when you turned 34? Was it a... An emotional time? It was. I I thought, you know, I'd get hit by a bus or something. But instead of dying when I was 34, which obviously I didn't, I felt pregnant when I was 34. And then I had a baby that was born on the 7th of November and she came a week early. And my mum died on the 7th of November in 1973. So the day I lost my mum... That many years later, I feel like she gave me my daughter. Do you see your mother in your daughter? Do you see the similarities of what you remember of your mother? Are there traits? I do. I do see some of that in my daughter. Um, my mum was a lovely, I remember her as a happy, bubbly woman, um, full of life. She was, And she was a very elegant, elegant, gorgeous um, lady and that's what my daughter is she's the most elegant young lady you've done a good job thank you mark i'm proud of her the number thing what do you put that down to we are you into numerology no not really not in that way but we all have numbers every family has numbers we have certain numbers in our family and the corley family has number 17 in their life my mother was born on the 17th so, you know, it, it's funny how numbers just come up in people's lives. It just, it's just there. Uh, I don't necessarily, um, you know, go big into numerology, 
But in my mind, and my friends know that number because they'll see it. They go, oh, my God, it's 34, isn't it? <laughs> they just know that that's a number that's in my life. You are episode the opposite, 43. I know. There you go. See how the universe works? Yeah, just make it work. Back to front. The other people that are you going, are, are you a tight group? Oh, we are. We're a very tight group. So um, two of us live in Gympie still. So myself and um, Wendy, Wendy Barasso, we're in Gympie still. Then one of us is in Tinkham Bay, um, who also used to live in Gympie, Lorraine. And she's now working in Chinchilla at the moment, actually. So it's funny how things connect. And then um, the other one, Madeline, Madeline Mincha, she was in Gympie for many, many years, 20 years or more. And she's now living at Doonan. And then the fifth team member, Colleen, used to be in Gympie. She was um, at the Gympie Hospital as a theatre nurse and she's now in Tasmania as well. But her and um, Colleen and Madeline know, know each other from Tennant Creek, so they go back even more, many, many more years as well. So we've all known each other for like 20 years or more. Um, so, yeah, we're a tight-knit group, but we're a little bit spread out at the moment. Um, but we have um, Zoom meetings <laughs> all the time. We check check in. We check in all the time and we send each other little videos of things all the time of we're up to. And Colleen, because she's not here um, and isn't able to help with the fundraising sometime on the ground, she's in charge of all our costumes and our attire because you have to plan all these things. It's a bit like going on a cruise. They have little theme nights so every night there's some sort of a theme for the night so she's in charge of all our costuming and getting things prepared for us because there's a lot to do with that so she's doing an amazing job getting ready for that um, and we're doing the fundraising and stuff like that and then the Leonard's drilling who are giving us our car are doing all the car prep work getting the car ready now you talk about COVID what contingencies have you made because of the whole COVID situation as it rears its ugly head once again? It's out of our hands I guess. I guess that'll depend on what variety does at the time. So as as we know nobody will know until we get closer to the day depending on where we're at. So everybody's hopeful and everybody's got their fingers crossed that by then um, we've got to get through winter. That's the hardest time with COVID. That's why we're going through what we're going through now as well. We've got to get through the winter. Um, so it's nine weeks away and hopefully it'll all be good. Uh, we don't have to cross borders. It's all within our own state. So we don't at least have to deal with crossing the border. So hopefully it will be okay. With dentistry, has COVID been much of a bother to you Is it as you have to work around it and with the... Uh the whole COVID situation, has it affected you much? In the beginning, when we had our initial lockdown last year, when nobody really knew what was happening with COVID, what COVID was, what it meant for all of us, uh, we shut the business down for three weeks. And um, then we reopened um, as an emergency um, practice. Um, so high-end emergencies, because uh, right in the beginning with the COVID, um, we... 
weren't allowed to create aerosols. That was one of the biggest problems. And as a dental practice, that's what we do. We create aerosols um, all day, every day. So it was a high-end emergency, dire emergencies only, but that restriction only lasted a week. And then we were able to start doing a bit more and we staggered our staff back over the next three weeks after that. So we didn't all come back at once. We staggered back bit by bit. And after seven weeks, we were all back on deck. And then since we've been back on deck, um, we've just been flat out. And I don't think it's just us or just Gimpy. It's just in general. Um, and I don't think it's just dentistry. It's any kind of health practice. Every health practice that you talk to, no matter what branch you're talking to, everybody's been just flat out since this COVID thing happened. People are just more aware of their health. People don't want to leave things go. They certainly don't want to leave an emergency unattended to. They want to deal with it. Um, ASAP because they don't know what will happen. For example, in Sydney, they're in lockdown now. So if you've got a dental emergency, you know, that's not a good situation to be in. So um, yeah, it's been really busy. And um, the way we're managing COVID on a day-to-day basis, and we take temperatures every day, all the staff and everyone that comes through the doors. We have mouth rinses and hand washing every day. Our waiting rooms are bare, as you you probably would know. You know, you can't have magazines out, toys, anything that people would share, that kind of thing. Um, Chairs are limited, so chairs are separated, so there's a bit more distancing um, as well. So, and I think that will become an ongoing thing. You know, a lot of the changes we've all had to implement, I think a lot of the changes will will remain, um, I think, for the future. Do you think that there will be another lockdown where you may have to close your doors for an extended period once again? Because that's tough on small businesses. It is tough and it's quite possible that there will be another lockdown because, as we know, Sydney's, Victoria just had it. Um, Sydney's going through it now. So we've got colleagues down there who, you know, can't go to work. So it's quite possible. But I still think at the end of the day, um, Australia is so lucky Uh, with the way that we've managed COVID and the way that, you know, we've been affected. We have been affected, but as far as the world is concerned, we are doing so well. Thank goodness we're an island. Looking back at your life with everything that you've had to deal with, from losing your mother through to domestic violence and everything that you have achieved, are you proud of yourself? Um, yes. Yes, I am. I am proud of myself. Um, I could have turned out to be somebody completely different. You know, I could have run away from home and gone and become a druggie or a prostitute or who knows what. But I didn't choose that path. I chose a different path. Um, I, I could have ended up being something completely different, really. But I didn't choose that path. I chose a different way. Did the path choose you or did you choose it in some ways or both? Probably both, I would say. If you had to make a change, if you could retrospectively go back and change your life or something that's happened in your life, what's the big thing that you'd turn back and change? Something that's possible or not possible? Well, possible. It's hard It's hard to say. Um, things happen in life. You can't have regrets. You just have to go move forward and make the most of life. Um, 
I'm very lucky. Um, family is important to me, but I have a small family. But through my um, ex-husband's family, who decided when we separated, divorced, they decided not to divorce me. Yeah. And we remained as close as ever and we still are to this day. And that's not very common um, through a divorce situation. So I still have that family, which is a blessing because that means my daughter has that full extended family. She's never felt like her family was split or separated. So I'm really grateful for that, that she has that because she's an only child. So she doesn't have a lot of family if we were to be separated and the family was split then she'd be, you know, alone, more or less. Um, and I didn't want that for her. So I'm very grateful that we are still part of this beautiful family and um, we all get on well. Um, and as I said, you know, they, they, Uncle Chris is my ex-husband's brother. So Uncle Chris and Aunty Vetti are my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and they still introduce me as their sister-in-law even though I've divorced the, the brother years ago. They go, oh, this is our sister-in-law. So, yeah. It's, it's been a beautiful, beautiful thing to have. You came out to Australia thinking it's the lucky country. You still think that all these years down the track? Absolutely, yes. We came to the lucky country. Um, that's how it was known. That's how, you know, we all talked about it. And here I am 50 years later, actually, it's 50 years uh, 2021. So 50 years since I landed and I still think it's a lucky country. Branka Stasevic, or should I say Branka, for our Croatian friends. Thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thank you, Mark. It's been my pleasure.